Hey everybody, this is my very first podcast on Substack. This is John Moore, and this is Shamanism, Spirituality, and Success. And today I'm going to talk to you about love, and what is love, and the spiritual nature of love, and what love means, and etc, etc, etc. And what really made me want to uh, talk about love today is that we are a in the middle of pride month and i consider myself an ally of the lgbtq community and um a loved one a very close loved one of mine reminded me that i had yet to do anything on social media about uh you know celebrating pride this year and I have in years past. So here we are. I'm going to talk about love. I'm going to talk about diversity and pride and the spiritual nature of love. And we're gonna we're gonna get into it. I hope the audio is coming out okay. I am recording this directly into Substack. It's a brand new feature, folks. At least for me. So let's talk about love. Now, one of the complicated things about love is the word love in English has so many different uses. We don't often think about this, but I can say um, I love my girlfriend. I can say I love my children. I can say I love cheeseburgers. And those really kind of mean different things. And what we use love for very frequently in English is a really extreme form of like. I like this a whole lot, therefore I love it. It's a degree above like. But that's, you know, that's not exactly capturing, capturing love for me. That's not exactly doing it. Um. And it has come to my attention. I read somewhere, and as far as I know, this is true. I don't speak Persian, but in Persian, they have something like 85 different words for love. And in other languages, they have, uh, you know, numbers of words for love. One of the things, um, you know, I practice and teach shamanism, the art of the shaman, and um, I... Uh, you know, but I also study lots of other spiritual systems. And one of the things that I'm um, really fascinated by because of my family history and stuff is Scandinavian folk magic. And very lately, I have been um, studying spirits, the dead, beings, stuff like that in Scandinavian folklore. And there are so many different terms for what we'd call, you know, we have a few different terms for this. We have ghosts, we have spooks, ghouls, wraiths, you know, that sort of thing. And a lot of these things come from old Germanic, Scandinavian languages and stuff like that. But they have terms for um, the ghosts of drowning victims and the ghosts of um, unbaptized children and the ghosts of uh, all kinds of things. The ghosts of people. Here's an interesting one. Um, I'm going to look this up. I'm going to look up this term because um, uh, I want to I want to get it right because I think it's oh yeah um, 
the term is elite guba, which is one who moved a border stone to their advantage and then died. So if you lived on a farm and you moved someone's border stone to give you, you know, the more property and you died, your ghost is going to walk the earth carrying a lamp. Leaked guba means like lamp, lamp man, lamp old man. And um, now they have to guide the lost and the astray to the right path. It's sort of like divine punishment. But anyway, clearly spirits and elves and uh, trolls and things, um, very common and lots and lots of different words for them. So when we find, in my opinion, I'm not a linguist, but when we find a culture that has lots of different words around the same thing, it generally means that thing is important, right? So, um, you know, the Inuit have so many different words for snow, right? I don't know how many it is, but many different words for snow. We have snow in English. But to somebody who lives above the Arctic Circle, the different, knowing different types of snow and how to describe different types and consistencies and the way snow falls and that sort of thing is important to survival. So what this tells me is that love has not always been that important in the English speaking world. And we have lots of ideas about this, right? We have the ideas of romantic love. And this comes from, um, you know, the romantic period in which love was idealized in poetry and music and, you know, romantic Romantic love and chivalry, which, by the way, if you actually read the Code of Chivalry, there's only like a very small amount of that has to do with how men treat women. And the rest of it is battlefield etiquette. But we have a very romanticized version of chivalry. And so very often we think about love, we think about like Valentine's Day, falling in love, these strong emotions you have, emotions of attachment, emotions of fondness. And that's all good, but that's also not exactly the picture of divine love. And what I mean by divine love, well, let me explain it this way. My grandmother is still alive. She is about, she's 105, she will be 106 this August. She was born in a very conservative family in Bath, Maine in 1916. And really where and when she lived when she was little was uh, very much a frontier. You know, it had been settled. They didn't have to worry necessarily about being um, attacked by indigenous people, but they weren't that far from that in history. But they lived in a place with no running water, no electric lights, um, no, uh, no stores. They didn't have a horse and they didn't have a car. Anywhere they went, they walked. Um, every child in the family had two sets of clothing. One for school and church, the nice set, and one for play and work and everything else. And imagine everybody had a nightshirt too, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Um, you took a bath once a week. There was one tub and there, my great grandmother, who I knew uh, growing up until I was about uh, 10 or 11, I would say, um, filled that tub with a kettle of water from a wood stove, which also served 
to cook and the only source of heat in the house. And let me tell you, Bath, Maine gets mighty cold in the winter. Lived through some things. Anyway, enough of my grandmother's history. My grandmother is a religious person, highly religious person. Um, besides going to church regularly and doing Bible study and all of those things, um, she was a, uh, a reader in her church. Her church doesn't have professional clergy, so they would um, have readers who would give the sermons. My grandmother gave sermons. She taught Sunday school. She did a heck of a lot of volunteer work. Um, was a very religious person. And so a lot of her ideas about the world were shaped by her religious upbringing, um, but also her family upbringing. Um, my <laughs> my great-grandfather, who I also knew, uh, by the way, I knew, um, gosh, uh, three of my great-grandparents and all four of my, my grandparents, uh, longevity in my genes. Um, my great-grandfather's not a very nice person. But my grandmother was a nice person and her mother was a nice person. But my great-grandfather was um, the kind of guy who would trip a toddler and then laugh, thinking that was funny. He did that to my mother when she was learning how to walk. Um, but anyway, my grandmother one day, and, and I don't remember how we got into this conversation, but she was talking about heaven and hell and her concept of heaven and hell. And... What she said was um, someone had asked her about heaven and hell, and her answer to them was very simple, what she thought about heaven and hell. She said, when I am angry or full of rage or full of hate or being uncharitable or, you know, uh, really cross with somebody, we would say you're really cross or you're really ugly. We get ugly with somebody. It doesn't mean you're ugly looking. I don't know if they use that in other places, but that meant um, furious, getting ugly was really, really angry, really, really angry with somebody. She said, when I do that, I am in hell on earth. Because that is a condition of suffering and not only suffering, but you're trying to cause someone else suffering. But when I am kind and when I am charitable and when I am loving, and when I am serving, then I'm in heaven on earth. I'm content. I'm happy. What a beautiful sentiment. That has stuck with me for many, many years. I was probably a young teenager when she said that to me. And I'm uh, over half a century old at this point. So that has stuck with me for more than 30 years. Yeah, more than 30 years anyway. And, um, you know, it was a really important lesson. It's one of the best lessons I took from my grandmother, um, who is still alive. So she still has things to teach. So what I like to do is I like to talk about this um, scale of love. Because I don't find that as human beings, we don't operate really in a black and white world. Although we like to conceive of it that way. We like to think about good and evil, love and hate, heaven and hell as, you know, polar opposites, sometimes with no degrees of separation in there. But most of the time we're living somewhere in the middle, right? Um, you know, we have different feelings for different people. We, we, you know, and we treat love as an emotion. 
we treat feeling, you can have a loving feeling towards somebody. That's an emotion. But that that's really not what we're talking about. We're talking about divine love. So I'm going to define my terms, not because I think you need to adopt my terminology or my definitions, but just because um, I think it's important that you understand what I think I'm talking about. Um, so we have some clear communication. Okay. So I'm going to give a very simple definition of love, of, you know, we'll, we'll call this pure love, right? If you are in a pure loving state towards someone, you would feel complete and total acceptance of that person. You would not reject any part of that person. You do not love somebody in spite of their shortcomings. You even love their shortcomings. Now that is a pure love. And I understand that as a human being, that can be really hard to accomplish because we have an upbringing and we have socialization and we come from a culture and we, you know, all of these things have shaped our opinions and how we feel about things and our judgments. And people do stuff to us that hurts us, right? And people do things out in the world that are unacceptable you know, murder, rape, genocide, warfare, all of these nasty things. And it's hard to accept that. It's, it's hard to fully accept those people as they are, as they are right now in this moment. So one might think, well, I don't feel that way, so that doesn't exist. Um, but... That does exist in, a, in very heightened spiritual states. But let me talk about the opposite a little bit. So the opposite of love, we, we would term hate, right? Hate, I hate this. It's the opposite of complete acceptance. And, and if you think about it, what hate is, is you're actually rejecting the thing that you hate. You say, I hate this soup. You're rejecting the soup. You don't like the way it tastes or smells or looks or whatever. When hatred comes out with people, very often this is bigotry, right? Um, I hate people of this ethnicity. I hate people from this country. I hate people of this religion. You know, this bigotry, this is a rejecting of somebody because of who they are. That is the, and so the opposite of that being love is accepting somebody fully for who they are. And, you know, again, we live in a world where perfect love and perfect, per, I guess, perfect hate, complete hate don't necessarily exist, although I've uh, certainly experienced lately some examples of just utter hatred. There's a lot of that going on in the world. It's been going on forever. Um, it's how we justify violence against people. We have to, there's a process that we have to go through of um, dehumanization before we can do violence against other people. We have to, in our mind, we have to make them unworthy of human compassion. 
and the things that and so very often what you'll find in uh, what I've seen in warfare, um, you know, from studying propaganda, um, from studying history, from talking to people who have been in war is they will have epithets for quote unquote, the other side. I'm not going to repeat any of them because uh, quite frankly, they're pretty racist and bigoted. But I can remember the epithets, you know, my friends who were in Iraq coming back and talking about or Afghanistan, not all of my friends. Some uh, came back and they're like, oh, the so-and-sos, you know, using racial epithets because they had to, right? In order to pull the trigger and take that human being's life, which by the way, I mean, even if you try to dehumanize them, that's not perfect. You have to get to a level where you can see them as as non-human and that damages us. It's where a lot of PTSD comes from dehumanizing people. But there's a lot of hate in this world and there's a, there's a lot of love in this world. And there's a lot of stuff in between. So what can we do if there's somebody out there who um, we want to we want to be more loving, we want to feel more loving. If you want to feel more love, become more loving. Feeling love is not about getting the admiration and acceptance of others. It's about fully, completely accepting yourself and giving that acceptance to others, and you will feel more love. That's a secret you can take to the bank, right? And so what can we do when people make it hard for us to love them? It's hard. I'm a human being. When I when I see people attacking people on the street um, over their political beliefs or their race or whatever, that is hard for me to accept. So one thing that I try to do, not always successfully, but um, makes me feel better, is I do try to look at those people with compassion. And I think about things like um, what happened to that person to make them go this far astray. The word sin, and and I'm not a huge proponent of um, dogma, biblical dogma and that sort of thing. The word sin um, actually means to miss the mark, like an archer missing a target. It's the same word. And it's, it doesn't mean there are, you know, there are things in the Bible that talk about, you know, such and such is an abomination to the Lord. Don't eat shellfish. Um, you know, whatever else don't have sex. Sex is bad, but somehow we have a, you know, 8 billion people in the world. I guess everybody was immaculately conceived, right? Um, It, it real it's really about missing the mark. Where the, so these people who are hate filled and violent and all of these things, 
that's sin. They've missed the mark. They've missed the mark of acceptance. They've missed the mark of divine love and moving towards divinity. Let me talk about divinity for a moment, but they've missed that mark moving towards divinity, which is what sin is. Now, one, let's talk about divinity for a little bit. I, I mean, I, before I go too far off the topic, because I've used that word. So you might use the word God, the creator, the source of all there is, right? You might use source, you might use universe, you might use God, you might use nature, you might use a pantheon of gods if you're pagan or Hindu or, you know, what have you. Um, you might use Brahma, you might use uh, uh, Ahura Mazda, you know, I don't know, whatever term you use. The source. Now, I, I'm talking about spirituality here, but I, I don't exclude people who are atheistic from spirituality. I do think people, and, and this might sound weird, but I think people who are atheistic can be spiritual because I think spirituality is really about the feeling of connection to something larger than ourselves. So you might be connected to the universe, right? Through quantum entanglement, we all were this, we all came from the same minute particle before the big bang. So we're all completely entangled. We're all completely connected to one another on a quantum level. Um, so when I talk about divinity, I'm talking about getting closer to the Godhead, getting closer to our own divine source, the source from which all things emanate. And um, I won't go too far down that rabbit hole. I'll do that on another podcast where I'll talk about uh, divinity specifically. Um, but the path of mysticism you know, most people go around um, in their spiritual life and they just kind of do the same thing uh, every day and they practice, they meditate, and it's great. Or they go to church and they pray or they go to church on Christmas and Easter, um, you know, and they never work on themselves spiritually. But all of the religious teachings, all the great religious teachings, all the great spiritual teachings um, talk about this. Um, they talk about what you should do. They talk about, sometimes it's in hidden terms. You know, in the Bible, Jesus talks about going into your closet to pray. And not praying, not praying publicly. Um, and they, to me, this is really about um, meditation or about communing with, with God. Because we do that on a very personal, individual level. Um, but all the great you know, spiritual practices have a mystical path. And frequently that's esoteric, which esoteric just means hidden or occult, right? And there is esoteric Christianity and esoteric Judaism and esoteric Islam and esoteric Hinduism, esoteric shamanism, esoteric everything. There is an esoteric path to everything. And there are different paths, but they're all leading to the same mountaintop. Mysticism is about union with the divine. It's about waking up and realizing that you are not separate from God. So one of the features of the mystical path is that we have to move towards a loving state. 
because in that complete acceptance, if you think about the concept, if you think about the concept of source, you think about the concept of God, even if you don't believe in God, just think about the concept for a moment. If God, let's, we'll just describe God as the universe or we'll describe God as everything, which might be more than the universe because, you know, um, there are some very real theories that, um, that there are more than one universe, that there may be infinite universes. Well, let's just talk about our universe for a moment. And I promise I'm going to get into diversity and pride and pride month and LGBTQ plus folks in just a moment. But we think about our universe, our God, we are, you know, the creator, the source, whatever. What does it do? And we think about, um, we even go back to Greek times. We can think about Jupiter, right? Jupiter, the God of the sky, the God of thunder, the head of the gods, the Olympian gods, right? Um, He was a god of the sky. What does the sky do? What does the universe do? Well, the universe doesn't do anything, and the sky doesn't do anything except contain everything. In other words, it is completely accepting of everything there is. Everything. There's nothing that's outside of that. Our minds are inside the mind of the universe. And likewise, the universe is inside our minds because it's everywhere and everything. And this is how we might describe God. If you don't view, I realize that some people, um, you know, view source or God as transcendent and not in touch with everything. And, you know, they, try to anthropomorphize God a lot. You know, a bearded man standing in the clouds, lots of popular culture stuff, lots of, um, uh, you know, Renaissance art shape the way we think about things spiritually. So, but let's look at that. Let's, so it contains, it accepts everything. So if we want to be more like source, if we want to be more divine, if we want to be more like God, we have to make space for everything and everyone. That means we have to accept it. And again, that's really hard. We're human beings. We are not gods yet. Kind of, sort of. We co-create our universe. But, you know, this, uh, you know, this idea that God creates everything, one of the things that we can do, so I'm sitting here all by my lonesome, talking to you from my living room inside my small house, inside a small town in a small state, in a large country, on a small planet, in a small solar system, in a tiny corner of a galaxy, which is a speck of dust amongst the billions of galaxies in the universe. And there may be infinite universes. 
But as I sit here and look around, what I see is that the natural state of the universe is diverse, even amongst just human beings. But we won't even get into like how many species of beetles there are on Earth or bacteria or fungus or dogs or whatever, you know, breeds of dogs. Diversity is everywhere we look, everywhere. There's so much difference. We look for things that are similar, but start to look for things that are different. And you realize that is the natural state of the universe. The universe is diverse and it accepts, it holds without judgment, without control, wanting to control, without rejection, everything, all of this diversity. So, you know, this is, as I said, this is Pride Month, and I consider myself an ally of the LGBTQ plus community. And I have, you know, loved ones who are part of that community, very dear loved ones and friends. And um, I want a world for them where they are accepted by everyone. And as an ally, I'm going to do my part to make everyone in my life comfortable to be who they are when they are with me. As long as they're not harming anyone else, then who they are is fantastic. And even if they are harming something else, that's not about who they are. That's about what they're doing. And again, when we find it challenging to separate the person from the behavior, we can look for a spark of compassion, a spark of humanity, a spark of you know, this is a human being. I'll use an extreme example. Um, sometimes I use really extreme examples to illustrate things. Uh, Charles Manson, right, uh, passed away a few years ago. Um, you know, had been in prison almost his whole life, um, you know, and was responsible for ordering the murders of a number of people you know, with the Manson family, you know, a group of young people who, you know, they were essentially a cult and he convinced them to go out and murder some people in very horrific ways. And it's hard to feel compassion for somebody like that. Somebody who like took delight in the deaths of others. Delight, right? That's evil. We'll talk about evil on another podcast, but this person took delight in the pain and suffering of others. That's my clear definition of, of evil. But, and, and not to excuse a single thing he did, because I am not doing that. But when I look at him as a human being, can I feel compassion for the way he was raised? as a child, which ultimately resulted, you know, he's still responsible for all of his choices, 
but the way he was raised as a child was responsible for his state of mind for shaping the choices that he made. And if you don't know, um, you know, his mother was a prostitute. He was raised as a child. He lived in a brothel with her, spent most of his life incarcerated from juvenile hall. I don't believe he was educated. Um, you know, and at that time, the time that he was active and about in the community, he was uh, kind of a hippie and, and rejected by everyone. But he was also charismatic and he also wrote music and he also, you know, so there are, there are these sides to him. Now, his a charisma in the hands of somebody without an ethical or moral compass is dangerous. We see that in politics. We see that in religion. We see that in business. But can I think about that man? He was a little tiny man, by the way. I, um, I knew somebody that had uh, met him one time. It was a lawyer that went into pr the prison where he was being held and in um, California and the guards there used to parade people by, Hey, you want to see, you want to meet Charlie? And they used to parade people by, um, and they used to beat him severely in prison. Um, this person that I know witnessed, uh, witnessed him, the guards going in and just beating him. Um, can I feel compassion for that? Yeah, I can feel compassion for that. You know, and, and maybe it's harder for you, and that's fine too. I can feel compassion. I can accept that that's harder for you. I'm not. I'm not sitting here trying to tell anybody what they should do, or what they have to do. I'm not about dogma. I'm just trying to point some things out that may be helpful. And I hope this has been helpful. Now, I'm going to wrap this little podcast up. This has been my very first talk, not my first podcast ever, but my first podcast on Substack. Uh, I'll try to do more. So don't forget to subscribe, and I will talk to you all real soon.